Welcome to episode 101, Understanding the World That Shaped Us, where diversity meets developmental and relational trauma therapy, featuring LaShonda Sugg, licensed professional counselor. Make sure to subscribe to be alerted about future episodes by Clearly Clinical. Learn, grow, shine. Hello to our listeners. Uh, Today, we are fortunate to be spending time with LaShonda Sugg. She is a licensed professional counselor, and she's a certified trauma responsive therapist, consultant, and the founder of Labors of Love Counseling and Consulting, LLC in Cincinnati, Ohio. She has a specialization in working with trauma and has a focus on multi-generational families. LaShonda, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. So today, we have a big topic to discuss. We're going to be talking about really transgenerational trauma and not only how that affects our clients, but how we as clinicians can be more aware of that um, for ourselves in our lives and particularly in the counseling room. Um, So before we launch into that, LaShonda, why don't you tell us a little bit more about you and about your background? Yes, thank you. So um, I am a therapist and a training consultant. in the Cincinnati, Ohio area. Um, But I like to say I I really was born for this work. Um, And so my focus on trauma is clinically, I love working with multi-generational families uh, because a lot of our trauma and a lot of our wounds are relational and developmental. Uh, So helping entire families address those issues that usually get swept under the rug or ignored or gaslighted, uh, bringing families in to kind of help them address that has been very helpful for the entire family dynamic. It brings me a lot of joy. I do work with couples and individuals as well, but to that same aim, we're looking at how have the experiences you've had in your past impacted the way you show up in the world. And then from a a consulting side, I do a lot of training and consultation for organizations, corporations, law enforcement, uh, nonprofits, churches, and faith organizations to help them understand what is trauma, how does it impact people, how does it show up in regular daily activities so that these places can not only uh, provide the services they provide, but provide them in a trauma responsive way, which means not just acknowledging that a person has trauma, but how do we then create the safety that these people need to uh, feel safe throughout those services, as well as how do we help them build resilience? Wonderful. Um, Well, thank you for joining us to share your experience and expertise on this. Why don't we launch right in and why don't you start by sharing how you see trauma? So I, I always like to say that trauma is not an event or a series of events, but it is the worldviews, the behavior patterns, and the belief systems that result after an event or a series of events. And so when we focus on trauma as an event, then what happens is people have a tendency to say, well, that happened a long time ago. You know, that that's over. So if a person can just, you know, be strong minded and, and get over things that have happened in the past, then, you know, they should be okay. But when we realize that the event has passed, but the way we learn to survive the event, the stories we made up about the event and why it happened and the worldviews that resulted live within us and they're lodged in our bodies until we very intentionally and actively address those things. Well, then we're having a whole different conversation. Now we understand that trauma is something that is alive and it is dynamic and it shifts how we engage with the world. And now we have something concrete to really work towards in regards to trauma resolution, building resilience, um, feeling safe in our bodies. Um, When you say trauma resolution, tell me what that means to you. Mm -hmm. Uh, For me, I believe that, well, the foundation of trauma resolution would be for a person to feel safe in their body, in the here and now. Uh, Kind of trauma or trauma responses are oftentimes our brain and body collaborating together to survive an event that it feels is happening right now. These events are often historical and are not happening in the present, but our body doesn't understand that. Uh, And so trauma resolution would be being in the present, being able to be fully in the present, which involves uh, using our five senses and being embodied in a way that trauma oftentimes disconnects us from. I also think part of trauma resolution is moving from this state of constant survival 
to a state of being able to then transform those survival skills into things that propel people into their futures and ultimately help others. Got it. Um, when you were talking about trauma and how you see it, you're saying it's it's not a single explicit event and it's not even a series of events. It's how that becomes really ingrained in the fabric of who we are and how we interact with the world. I know one of your passions is looking at this through a multi-generational perspective. When you zoom out and so you see like an isolated, an isolated incident of trauma or a series of traumas that have been experienced by a person, how do you see this kind of echoing through subsequent generations, through their current generation? And how do we as therapists kind of relate to these traumatic experiences and how they have, I guess they cast shadows across others? Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the first things that um, I lean into as a therapist is curiosity and compassion. So when I see something manifesting, uh, a behavior, a thought, um, a response, um, I my first instinct is curiosity. I wonder, I wonder how that thing that they just said or they did or didn't say or didn't do um, is in some way keeping them safe, alive, or helping them avoid pain in this moment. I wonder where that originated from. You know, I wonder where that's rooted. Uh, and, and then I wonder how that was transmitted somehow from the past. And so what that looks like working with uh, a person is I do lean in, whether it's um, a shift in their body language or how they are, you know, some body movement they have or a thought they say, or they're telling me a story. And I say, hey, I wonder if we can pause and get curious for a moment, you know, and I always start or try to start with when that happened, where did you feel that in your body? So helping people to identify uh, how their body is communicating with them constantly. We have a tendency as a culture, as a society to jump head first so people will say, well, this is what I was thinking, or this is what I've made up. Um, and then helping a person say, okay, so let's pause that. That's the story that got made up. That's the, those are the words that are now assigned to an experience you had in your body. Can we take it back to where you felt it in your body? Because oftentimes the stories we make up are a response to what happened to our body, but it's decontextualized. We don't have the original context sometimes for what the body was responding to. So helping a person walk backwards through that is, that is where you fill in in your body. I ask them, can you assign a shape, a color, or a size? Let's get an image for this thing that's happening in your body. And as they're able to do that, and I have these sheets like with a person on it. And so I give colored markers or um, color pencils or crayons and say, let's, let's put that down. Where did you fill it? What color would you assign it? What shape, what size, what kind of texture did it have? Did an image come up? And as they're kind of mapping that out, then I will ask them, are there other experiences you've had that gave you a similar feeling? And as they kind of sit with that um, and they start to think, oh, well, this is what's coming up for me. I don't know where this is coming from. I get that a lot. I don't know where, let's go with it. Let's trust that now that we're listening to your body, it's taking it as an opportunity to communicate. And so as they begin to kind of identify, here is an example of when I felt when I felt that sensation. Oh, here's another one. Then we can look at the commonality between these experiences. And that helps us get underneath the actual uh, details, if you will, of what happened. But what was kind of that experience underneath? Sometimes it was fear or rejection or embarrassment um, or anger or pain. And as we begin to do that, then we name that. We name that experience. From there, we start building a map of these various experiences. And as we go back into the past experiences that a person has had, sometimes some other things that we can pull out of there is, oh, a lot of these things happened when my family was, when we were around our extended family. I would get this feeling when we were around that. And so we, we really are just kind of through curiosity and through exploration, trying to be detectives. Let's let's get as many clues as we can as to where this came from and what's it akin to. And, and, and then let's have gratitude for how this has kept you alive for so long. It's been a protective factor. I think one of the big things that I like to share with people is your body's response to life really is in an effort to keep you alive, to keep you safe, 
and to help you avoid pain. When we understand what our body and our brain collaboration is trying to do, even if the outcome is the opposite, then we can have some gratitude and compassion for the work that our body is doing. We can take away things like shame and self-deprecating things that we say or think about ourselves. And then we look and say, oh, it's, it's trying to utilize a skill that at some point worked. Let's have gratitude for how it worked then. But then let's give it a break and say, let's, let's get a new skill in there that can help you achieve the same thing, but not keep helping, uh, causing you to bump up against this wall. So it's need assessment. And once we've identified the need, how can we replace the, the strategies that are no longer useful with ones that are going to be beneficial and healthy for you? And that is, um, that is part of the process when I'm working with someone. Got it. And I know one of your passions is developmental and relational trauma therapy. When you're talking about this, are you pulling from that model? And can you tell us more really about how that model works? The acronym for it is DART with two T's. So again, that's developmental and relational trauma therapy. Um, tell us more about um, how this model relates to what you just said and kind of your understanding of trauma and its relationship to our bodies and coping skills and things like that. Absolutely. My pleasure. It's one of my favorite things to talk about in the whole wide world. <laughs> um, yeah. So ev pretty much, so, uh, you know, not everything, um, but through the lens of DART um, is how I really have come to view the world. So yeah, everything that I kind of mentioned in some way, shape or form intersects with the model, which essentially um, helps us to be able to look at the templates, what I call the template of a person I've named, their worldviews, their belief systems, their behavioral patterns. Let's look at how a person has come to be who they are. By the time we're seven years old, our templates are pretty much set. Anything we learn after that just kind of gets overlaid um, on top of these things that we are establishing. So by age seven, all of us knew how the world worked. Now, what we thought was this is how the world worked really was this is how my family works or this is how my community works. But in a child's mind, it gets globalized. So this is how um, this is how the world works. And so when we go through developmental and relational trauma therapy, which is uh, rooted in the work of Pia Melody and post-induction therapy, and we are looking at how do we recognize the wounds that we have had and provide nurturing for those parts of ourselves, our inner children, they're still there, while cultivating and strengthening the functional adult part of us. So what that looks like, uh, we have five core practices that we help people explore and really build the practice of utilizing and strengthening these practices on a regular basis. We look at valuing ourselves, and that's looking at self-esteem and this idea of inherent worth. So many people, I'm definitely one of those people, did not grow up learning implicitly or explicitly that I am valuable just because I exist. Instead, I learned to earn my value. For me, what that looked like was getting good grades, being pretty outspoken and participating, performing. I learned to perform for value. No one said those words to me, but that's what really made my dad smile. That's what got those words of affirmation from him. Um, I learned to be put together, whether that's how I physically looked or, you know, putting forth a smile, even when things were falling apart. Those were the things that seemed to, you know, make sure that I got the responses from my family that, uh, that meant, helped me feel loved and valued. And so we look at how do we value ourselves, learn to love ourselves based on our inherent worth. We talk about protecting ourselves, which are our boundaries. How do we put to put a healthy functional boundaries in place that not only protect us, but contain us? I think that's a part of boundaries that people sometimes miss. We talk about or think about boundaries in the way of how can I protect myself from harm? But we sometimes forget that boundaries are put in place so that we don't harm others as well. And this looks at our internal boundary system. So not the fence or the door, 
or maybe even the block in your schedule that we would say is a boundary. But how do we filter in what we take into ourselves and what comes out of ourselves? So we help people protect themselves. The next thing we, uh, the next practice would be knowing ourselves. How can we help people understand that they are human and imperfect and that that's okay? So many of us uh, struggle with perfectionism or having to do it right, be right all of the time because our reality has sometimes not been acknowledged. When we made a mistake, it was treated sometimes as a willful act of disobedience. So we never learn to differentiate the difference between, oh, I made a mistake and here's a learning opportunity and I've done something bad. If you don't know the difference between the two growing up, then everything that falls short of someone's expectation translates into bad. Therefore, I'm bad. And that's not reality. Part of reality is also when our internal experience is validated by our external reality. And some of us have grown up with experiences inside, whether it was fear or anxiousness or whatever is happening on the inside. But we've had adults and people on the outside say, you'll be fine. What, what are you crying about? Like, there's nothing to be afraid of. No, everything is fine. And so my internal experience is incongruent with what's happening outside. And that really can mess with our reality. So we help people through this practice of knowing themselves to kind of sit and acknowledge their humanity, their imperfections. Uh, the fourth practice is taking care of ourselves. And that's all about dependency. On this spectrum, some of us reside on one side, which is over-dependent. We're too dependent. We never have the ability to build the confidence and competence to continue a task and see it to fulfillment, maybe because someone was constantly swooping in to do it for us or, or didn't trust us to do it. And so then we, we rely on people to do things that we could do for ourselves. On the opposite end of that spectrum is anti-dependent. Now, anti-dependence isn't, you know, I'll do it myself. Anti-dependence is I'd rather it go undone than to ask someone for help. And maybe that's because we have relied on people before and we've been disappointed and we've been let down and that hurts. Sometimes asking for help was shunned or we were made to feel bad about ourselves. How old are you? You ought to know how to do that by now. Shouldn't nobody have to tell you if we've learned over time that asking for help is not safe or it can be hurtful, then we don't build the muscle to learn to ask for help. And so what we do is we strive for a healthy interdependence. This idea that if I can do something for myself, I will. But if I need help, I'll ask. And if either sides of those are complicated or have an underdeveloped muscle, then we work through how do we get into the practice of interdependence, taking care of ourselves. And then finally, the fifth practice is moderating ourselves. How do we sit in this space between spontaneity, which encompasses joy and play, and containment, you know, which is kind of this very rigid way of existing? Uh, I know that for myself, um, I always say I went to a Black Baptist church, which if that has no context for you, it means three hour long services with a little break in between and then another one after that. And as a little girl, the expectation was I sat there quietly, not moving too much, not making too much noise. Don't get dirty. Right. So at a very young age, I learned to be really contained. Like I, I, I marvel at how I did it when I look at my children as they're growing and it's like, no way in the world <laughs> any of my children would have been able to do that. Me too. But I, I was like, raised similarly and I look back and, and wonder exactly the same thing. For me, it was uh, the required attendance at Catholic Church and going to Mass and then the required activities and you definitely didn't get dirty and you definitely didn't say anything. Exactly, right? So when you think about like what it took and took away for us to be able to do that, that is very telling. More than likely, if that's the experience, we I know I struggled with spontaneity. I was very rigid, very contained. Um, but on the other end of that, some people um, have had very few boundaries put around them. And so they're so spontaneous that they're unreliable. They're so spontaneous that it's, it's hard um, for them to be contained. And so moderating ourselves means how do we come into the middle of that space? that we can be open and, and include joy and fun into our world, but also 
uh, be contained enough that we're not bulldozing over people. And so those five practices are kind of the foundation of strengthening the functional adult. And anytime we struggle with kind of being in the middle of those five, it's not about judgment or condemnation, but it is a clue. There's that curiosity again, when it's like, wait, my functional adult knows how to do these things. So if I'm not able to ask for help right now, I wonder which part of me this is, which leads me to which of my inner children right now is activated or feeling some kind of um, pressure or fear and is trying to move me in a different direction. And just like I was talking about the body earlier, I, I truly believe that these, these younger parts of us, our inner children, they know how to engage with the world based on the experiences and the resources they have. And when they come up against something or when we come up against something, sometimes they will reach to take over because they're like, okay, I know how to survive this, but they only know how to survive it. You know, my seven-year-old only knows how to do that based on the resources she has at seven years old. And I don't know, I've said this to many people and I haven't had many people who are like, no, I don't know anything about that. But if you've ever had an adult temper tantrum, that moment when you just, and then when you're done, you're like, okay, that was totally, that wasn't even like me. Like you sometimes in the midst of it know what's happening. And you think back, like, what was that about? That's one of those inner children taking over. And so through DART, uh, we help people in addition to building these practices and strengthening the functional adult, we want people to be able to go back to these inner children and provide them with what they always needed and deserved, but didn't get. And that's oftentimes affirmation, nurturing, unconditional acceptance. For our teenagers, it's oftentimes validation and limits because our, our teenagers, are um, they think they're adults. I know I did when I was a teenager. You know, I thought I had it all together. I thought I knew it. And so my teenager is pretty polished. Um, she, she can mimic adulthood really well. But I begin to know, and these are seamless. I want to make that out. You know, that inner child doesn't knock on your door and say, hey, can I take over for a minute? Nope, it's just seamless. You get cut off on the highway. Next thing you know, you're laying on the horn, throwing out a lot of four-letter words, and you're ready to chase that car down. Probably not your functional adult. You didn't, they didn't ask permission. They just kind of came up. So how do we build these relationships with these younger parts of ourselves and reparent them? It's the work of reparenting. Uh, so um, in the book, Gifts from a Challenging Childhood by Jan Bergstrom, she kind of walks through each of those five practices that I talks about. And, and it's more of a workbook. Um, Jan is one of the founders of Healing Our Core Issues Institute, um, who provide the developmental and relational trauma therapy training. And I love the book because it gives these very practical exercises. And it, you know, it really is a nice complement to doing the work in therapy or any therapy that you're in to really start to make contact with these younger parts of ourselves and how they show up. In a, in a daily basis. Wonderful. Um, thank you for breaking it down and then going a little bit more in detail. For our listeners, again, um, just before we move on and kind of go down to the rabbit holes of these different topics, what were those five practices again, if you can just quickly name them just so we can hear them again and, and process them? Absolutely. Uh, so valuing and loving ourselves, protecting ourselves, knowing ourselves, taking care of ourselves and moderating ourselves. Wonderful. Thank you. And before we move on, I have a quick question for you. You mentioned kind of this magical age of seven, that that's really the time that we have figured out, like, you know, the relative map of how the world works. From a developmental standpoint, why age seven? What is it about that age that that lends that um, to this model? Like when I'm, when I'm thinking of it, of course, I can recall how I saw the world at age seven. Um, but I'm, and, and also I'm thinking, you know, Eric Erickson stages of development and all these other things. How do you see kind of the age seven? Yeah, I think it's a combination of, you know, when we look at the developmental, um, the developmental stages as have been presented with many of us who've gone through school, um, there's that, but there's also kind of this brain development stage from utero up until around that time, really, so utero, definitely around four or five, our brains are 
exploding with neuronal networks and connections, not just based on the interactions we're having, but around everything that's happening around us. There is this, this immediate download. It's why a child, um, a young child may speak three languages. They didn't learn three languages. Three languages were downloaded. Um, and so it is right around this time, around seven, where that kind of the process uh, begins to slow a little bit, but pretty much all the areas of, uh, again, our relative life map have been established neuronally and this social component of, you know, what authority looks like, what discipline looks like, um, what's safe, what's not, who's safe, who's not, has been really, um, you know, kind of rooted around that time. I've always been curious about our education system. It's like I learned this and I think right around the time when that that tr that exponential growth starts to slow down is when our kids start school. Um, and it's just this very interesting, you know, phenomenon. But that's a whole different subject about <laughs> how our education education system wants us to learn versus how the brain and body actually function. Mm -hmm. But yeah. Um, so yeah, that has a lot to do with it. Our developmental stages from a neurobiological standpoint standpoint, as well as just from this kind of social um, understanding of the world and the experiences that we've had up to that point. Got it. Um, thank you. That that helps kind of clarify and also solidify that number seven is kind of being that dividing line of where we've started to operate in the world with um, a relative framework of how things work. Um, so one of the things you mentioned was the concept of functional adulthood. Tell me more about that. Yeah. So as we're going through our lives as adults, um, one, our brain, our prefrontal cortex is not done fully forming until around age 25. And so for this work, I like to say that I, I work with ages 14 and up and I begin developing those practices with whomever I'm working with. But the functional adult, namely, let's say 25 and up. There is the brain is done developing and now we're engaging with the world, but still largely based on the same template we've been operating off of since we were children. So the functional adult can show up in the world and lean into curiosity and compassion instead of shame and judgment because they realize that there are all these practices they've been practicing. And as they move out of alignment with that, there's kind of this awareness that not just at how they look at themselves and how they're showing up, but as they're interacting with other people. So a functional adult can look at themselves and say, mm, I'm not feeling, you know, my self-esteem is feeling pretty down low right now. I'm, I'm judging myself against someone else. There's this comparison that's going on. I feel less than. A functional adult can, based on these practices, kind of look at that and say, well, let me explore that. But they can also look at someone who's trying to one-up them and with that same awareness, get curious and say, hmm. I wonder, a combination of boundaries and value, I wonder if they're experiencing something right now, they're trying to one-up me, but that has nothing to do with me. That probably has something to do with what they have going on. So being able to put those two things in place, the functional adult can use that curiosity then to say, I'm going to remove myself kind of emotionally from this situation. I'm not going to take on what they're trying to give me, because I think that has something more to do with them than it does with me. That would be a function of the functional adult versus maybe another part of that person where they say same situation happens and they feel or someone is trying to one up them and they go, oh, I hate when that. See, I'm, I'm this and I'm that and they're right. Or if they don't take it on and they feel that they're less than that person, then they feel like, well, I'm a one up you back. And then you get into this one upmanship. And, and none of that is really kind of this, this functional adult, again, who's kind of operating in the middle of those five pieces that they can look at themselves. They can look at how they're engaging with the world. They can be attuned with their higher power and their purpose, whether that's from a kind of spiritual religious perspective or just kind of their purpose in the world. That is where this functional adult can kind of holistically look at themselves and where they fit into the grand scheme of things and still feel confident, still feel that they can take care of themselves and that they know themselves without being kind of moved around emotionally and even socially based on what's happening outside of them. 
Got it. Um, one of the things that you and I have talked about before, of course, is um, to kind of apply it to what's happening in our country right now. But so if we take everything you just said about trauma in mind, if we take this concept of how we relate to one another, how we relate to ourselves, what boundaries we set for others and for ourselves, all these concepts, and zoom out and apply them both to our families, um, you know, these smaller systems, but then to bigger systems when we're looking at culture, ethnicity, race. I know that that's something that you're you're also very passionate about. How do you see these patterns echo through generations, particularly when it when it relates to things like immigration trauma or racial trauma? Um, these these traumas that can be so pervasive and systemic and are just ingrained in in someone's psyche. Absolutely. Thank you. I think this model is a really, really good overlay to look at all of the things you just named. So when I am thinking about any one person um, and think about how they have been culturalized and socialized, um, if they are in America, then there are some things that I know are kind of gonna be part of it, kind of period, with with some exceptions, sure, but generally there is a dominant narrative in our culture in America. And I like to think of it as a Word document. When you go into a Word document, there is a default setting, okay? Whether it's, you know, Times New Roman, 10 point font, margins or whatever they are, that is the default setting. Now. The, it doesn't have to be. You can change the margins. You can change the, the font. You can change all of those things, but it requires intentionality and extra effort to change it. So what is the default setting or the dominant narrative of our culture? And that is white, male, you know, middle class, cisgender, heterosexual, Christian, all of these things that when we are talking about in general, Americans, that's the default setting. So think about any person who's born in this country who is something other than the dominant narrative. Not only are they going through this developmental download and this relational download based on their family system, and their social structures, but there is this overall dominant narrative that is either telling them this, you're part of this narrative, that dominant narrative, and that's good, or you're an other. And other is not always specified. It's just not the dominant narrative. And so we have to take into account what people don't see and what people don't learn um, when we look at media, who's represented and how they're represented. All of that is part of the template that we come to know. It's not just interactions that we have with people personally, but what we read in books and what we see on the news. And now in the day and age, social media, when we were growing up, there was no social media in the way that it exists today. So who was represented, who was not represented, and when people were represented, how were they represented? All of that goes into this, this template that people are saying, okay, this is how the world works. This is who I am. This is how I fit into it. And so when you think about um, some of the, the narratives that are espoused throughout a person's life, whether we want to go back several years to when we were children, how did we come to know, you know, who we were? We know who we are based on who people tell us we are. We're given a name, we're given a family, we're giving everything when we're born. And then our self-concept is constructed around who those around us tell us we are or not who we are. And when we look at a country that was instituted and founded in white supremacy, patriarchy and anti-blackness, then that says a lot about who people come to know that they are. Even as children who are, um, whose parents immigrated to this country and those children were born here, they're still learning who they are or who they aren't in part based on the, the dominant narrative that they are seeing everywhere they go, the, the curriculums that are being used in school. Now, for some people, there are strong cultural ties where a child could learn very much who they are through the eyes of their family, through their culture. Um, 
And they're still interacting with the dominant narrative at some point in, in their rearing. And so when we begin to realize that is how we learn as humans and that this dominant narrative is teaching implicitly who's good, who's bad, who's right, who's wrong, who has value, who doesn't have value, and here are the ways to earn your value if you don't have it, then we have to look at how um, developmental and this relational trauma is embedded in there. Uh, one of Pia Melody's definitions of abuse is anything less than nurturing. And for me, I, I actually, <laughs> when I first got into Pia's work and I read that, it was really unsettling for me because that definition meant I was going to have to think a whole lot of, rethink a whole lot of things in my life. It was because I have extensive trauma, but until I was about 30, I would have said to you with no doubt, I've never experienced trauma. You know, I mean, sure, everybody has some hard things that happen, but I, I would not have called it trauma. I did not call it trauma. When I came upon this definition of anything less than nurturing, I was like, yikes, um, <laughs> what do you do with that? So if we take that definition and we just overlay, the, let's take it 2020, right? We don't have to go back to the, to the days of slavery or Jim Crow. We don't have to go back to the days of segregation and civil rights movement. Let's take 2020. Objectively, how are immigrants being treated? What is the narrative? that is being espoused about immigrants. And do you have to search really hard to find it? Or is it just there? What is the narrative about women that is being talked about right now? What is the narrative of people from African ancestry? What's the narrative of non-white people? What's the narrative of the LGBTQ plus community? Like, we don't have to search and say, let me go to a peer-reviewed article on the scholarly part of Google to answer those questions. You turn on any television, you stream any device, you go on any social media platform, and that narrative is right there. And so when we, the thing about those narratives, though, is they have been passed down from generation to generation, to generation. And so the thing about this uh, transgenerational trauma is a few things. One, part of how we raise our children gets passed down to next generations. And I think when I talk to people, that's where they start. Well, you had to learn that. So someone taught you that. And so part of it is the socialization and culturalization within families and ethnic communities that certain practices and traditions get passed down. But then there's epigenetics. And epigenetics is the study of our genes and how our genes express themselves and how they are passed down from generation to generation. And when I think about this, and a really good book reference for that is, um, it did not start with you, by Mark Wallum, I believe is the author's name, um, does a really good job and very, I think, accessible, in a very accessible way of showing um, and detailing how generational trauma gets passed down from generation to generation. And when I think about um, my ancestry as uh, a woman in this country whose ancestors were stolen from their land and brought to this country, and then had to survive um, physical beatings and rape and murder and the use of their bodies for labor uh, that some would profit and benefit from, but that they would systemically be barred from benefiting from. And I think about the resilience that it took to just get through slavery, um, the, the skill sets that would have to be developed uh, not just how to work and pick cotton and and care for someone else's child and and all of that, but I mean the skill set of not being seen, 
getting smaller and smaller. You do not want to get the attention of the slave master as he's going by. You want to be quiet and you want to be small. You want to be diligent and you want to teach your children the same. Children can't just run around and play. No, you have to be quiet. And they begin working in the fields as early as they can work. And you teach them how to behave in a way that doesn't bring pain and death and harm. And so not only do those teachings and, and, and ways of existing in the world get passed down behaviorally in what we teach our children, but then as our genes begin to morph for the, the environment we find ourselves and they begin to shift a little bit for our survival, that literally gets passed down in the rearing of each subsequent generation. And what was fascinating for me is when I discovered that when my grandmother was pregnant with my mother, I was there because my mother has a finite amount of eggs, right? I was one of those eggs. And my grandmother, who was a product of rape. Now, I never heard her or my mother product of rape. I never heard it talked about that way. We didn't talk about it that way in my family. We, we just kind of hoped no one would pick up the detail that she was 14 and that the person who would impregnate her was 20 years older than her. No, we didn't, we didn't call it that. We just kind of went about it. But can you imagine the stress that took place at this point amongst all the other details? And then she's pregnant that's passing directly through the placenta to my mom. I'm there. I was part of that. And so as we look at how those things get passed down, I'm hoping that people begin to recognize that it's not as simple it's just looking at a person's behavior or how they view the world and judging them and saying, well, they, you know, they want to be like that or they don't want better or, you know, it's not like that. No, these things are very much woven into who we are, whomever we are. You know, I was speaking of that as an African-American woman in this country, but that can go for any person's lineage. And it does. When we talk about, um, you know, the descendants of those who enslaved people, my ancestors, how they learned to survive that also got passed down. And so when we look at a culture that we're living in now, and we, and to some, it seems we've moved so far away, but we are still very much in a plantation mentality. We are still very much operating on master slave principles. And it shows up and it manifests itself in real ways on a daily basis. So when we look at developmental and relational trauma, it's that ability to be able to pause and really explore, how did I come to believe this belief? How did I come to view the world this way? That behavior pattern, that cycle, how did I become to enact this? And then without judgment, we can say, is it still useful? It served a purpose at some point. It really did, whether that's generationally or even in our own lifetimes. But is it something that's still benefiting me now? And is it something I want to look at changing? I think that's the power of the work. Thank you. I'm, I'm sure our listeners are going to listen to all of that on repeat. I know I will, because you said all of that so eloquently and so beautifully and weaving in how this is part of all of us, that all of our families have experienced hardship in different ways and appreciating that there are all different kinds of traumas, but that it didn't start with us. Um, and looking back at how these traumas shaped the way our great grandparents acted, our grandparents acted, our parents acted, and then how we act. And like you brought up with epigenetics and looking at how this has shaped who we are. And then what you're saying is taking DART and its application to then start evaluating, looking at it mindfully and saying, okay, this, this is what, this is the framework. This is what existed before. Does this work now? And what doesn't work? Can we leave it behind and move on with something new? Um, the piece about transgenerational trauma, I think, I, I, I think and I also hope that our listeners can reflect too with their own lives and thinking back of like that, that thing that happened. Um, one of my grandparents um, died when one of my parents was very, very young. And that had echoes through, um, you know, of course, my, my parents' life, but through this generation that followed through my cousins or my aunts and uncles and understanding that it's still impacting my child in that I have the 
um, the stuffed animal of one of, uh, of the man who died of my uh, grandfather. I have that, his stuffed animal from childhood on the shelf of my child. So there's a story, like these things get handed down. And that's a literal stuffed animal, but understanding that because of his death, my family made all of these rules that, you know, this is how you had to operate in the world. This is, this is what you do with money. This is what it means to be a woman. This is how you find a spouse and all of these ideas um, and understanding that that's part of all of us. And I'm glad that you bring up the piece about immigration and race and culture and ethnicity because it relates to all of us. We're all part of it and we have a, our own unique experience of it. Um, when, when you think about this, like, so as you talk, I know you're speaking both to the clinician of like, who are we as humans in the room? And then also like, this is how we apply this content to our clients. As you talk about this, what do you believe clinicians can do in their own reflection on like, these are these traumas that I got handed. These are the traumas I experienced myself and how they've shaped me and then how I show up in the therapy room. Um, you do your own work. <laughs> You know, it, it, I don't want to make it sound so simplistic, but we as clinicians have to do our own work, our own healing work, because when we don't, we are unintentionally and sometimes inadvertently causing more harm. If a person has not really sat and explored how um, their invisibility in their family no matter how hard they tried, no matter how much they performed or how well they wanted to do, if they don't explore and sit with how they were still invisible within the family system, so then they had to learn how to become good and perfect to even just be seen or maybe bad and rebellious. If you're not going to see me for the good stuff, then I bet you see me now. You know, we can call those, oh, just my rebellious teenage years. And without, but if we don't sit in that and know that that teenager is still in there who shows up from time to time, then you're sitting in a session with someone who says something that rubs that teenager the wrong way. And next thing you know, you've said something that you wish you hadn't have said. And it's different with the client or patient therapist, you know, relationship, because if this is a friend, maybe you'll come back later and say, hey, let's talk this through. But there is a innate power differential in a clinician client relationship. Maybe we don't want it that way. I work really hard in my practice to, to minimize and eliminate that dynamic, but people come in to that, to come into our, our offices and in relationship with us, oftentimes with that dynamic in place. And so you could say something out of this, you know, younger part of yourself and mean no harm, and you are doing harm to the person you're sitting with. If we have not explored the template of this country, the one of white supremacy and patriarchy and, you know, and, and oppression, then we can be sitting with a client who's been othered by this country and continue to other them just based on the words we use or how we reinforce their own internalized oppression because we haven't done the work to recognize how we contribute to supremacy and patriarchy and oppression. That's doing our own work. There is not an expectation, at least for me, of perfection because that violates humanity and reality. There is, though, a due diligence. There is a due diligence to do no harm. That's part of all of our ethical codes. Do no harm. And I believe that when we do not take doing our own healing work seriously, then we are flirting with this very real line of doing harm to people unintentionally. And I, I really think that's important. Anything less than nurturing. I don't know anyone who can hear that definition and go, oh, I've never experienced any kind of trauma. <laughs> no, I didn't watch the Partridge Family or any of those idealistic shows, but even on there, I'm sure there were things that were less than nurturing. It is never about blame and shame, but it is about the rightful assignment of responsibility. I think some people are very hesitant to look at their own templates and the landscapes of their lives because they do not want to bring any shame or doubt or or anything negative upon those who raise them, their family, you know. 
And, and I know that's tough. It, it's tough when they're alive. It's tough when they're dead. You know, don't speak ill of the dead. I've heard that so many times. And so when we can understand that this, again, it's not about shaming. So many of our caregivers were well-intentioned. You know, I steer away from the phrase, they did the best they could. I do believe many were well-intentioned. Sometimes they did not do the best that they could, but they were wounded too. I can look and say, each generation in my family seemed to have gotten a little better. They did better by their children than it was done to them. But that still doesn't mean that we weren't wounded and we weren't impacted. And so when we can rightly assign responsibility, that allows us to do a couple of things. One, stop carrying all the responsibility ourselves. Because as a child, if things are not rightly assigned, then our couple of options are to keep it on ourselves and say it was my fault or to keep it on everyone else and be blameless. And neither one of those things are true. So rightful assignment allows that tendency to get stuck because if I don't do it perfect, I can't do it. Let's figure out where that's rooted and let's let's let that go. Let's give that back. In my life, it came from my dad. My dad was the one who I brought home a report card of all A's. It's great. I brought home a report card of all A's and one B. First thing he said was, hey, how do we, how do we, what do we need to do to make this B and A? He was not mean. He wasn't, he didn't make bad faces. He, he was striving for excellence. You know why? There's one high school diploma between both of my parents. Education was foundationally important. He was just trying to push me to be what he couldn't be. That was his intent. What was the impact? Years later, I'm in grad school having a full blown meltdown because I'm getting my first non-A. Mind you, I just had twins and I was taking the hardest class in the program. I was getting an A minus. My husband <laughs> looked at me and it's like, um, it's an A minus. And I said, no, you don't understand. The goal is to graduate grad school with a 4.0. And lovingly, he said, no, the goal is to graduate. And I was like, Whatever, you was a C student. I don't even know why we're having this conversation. See, y'all thought that was the transformative. No, that didn't transform me at all. I was like, whatever, you would do enough to get by. We don't even get to have this conversation. But what it did do was it made me go like, okay, for real though, where is this coming from? And that's when I brought my way back to my dad. And what I realized was his intent to make sure that I strove, you know, I was striving for excellence and all of that, that was his. That wasn't mine. So what I learned to do is I learned to give that back to him. Here's the key. My father died in 2006. He did not have to be here to take it back for me to let it go. I engage with the world differently now that I don't have to do everything perfectly. And that's just one example of how that rightful assignment, that wasn't mine to carry. I had been carrying it for 30 some years, but I could finally let it go. I could give that back. And so when we start to do our work and we're intentional about it, we start to find things that we didn't even know were there, things that are hiding in the shadows, but they're not really. They show up every single day. We just say, that's just who I am. That's just my personality. That's just what I do. Instead of recognizing that that's really how we adapted. And so that is my encouragement, my urging, my plea really to clinicians is if we can be intentional about doing our own healing work, then we put ourselves in a position to further help our clients because we will have been in these practices of cultivating and strengthening our functional adult. We lean in with curiosity and compassion and we can only be that much better for our clients as they come to us struggling with some of the same less than nurturing wounds that they've experienced. As you're talking about this, I'm hearing the confluence really of so many different models. You know, I'm, I'm picturing a genogram in my mind and looking back at generations of ways of being, you know, who, who divorced whom and was there incest? Was there alcoholism? Like, you know, looking back at a genogram and then where this is lining up with evaluating our belief systems, where it is in our body, you know, EMDR, the body keeps score, like all these different things are kind of coming together as you're talking about this. And it's, and it's no wonder, it's no wonder that it's all coming together because it's all rooted in the same concept, which is this, this is the fabric of who we are as individuals. And what you're saying is then let's as clinicians look at this and then asking ourselves, how is this showing up, not just in the world at large, but how is it showing up um, in the therapy room with our clients? Um, 
there are so many more questions that I want to ask you about this because we could keep talking because there's so much here. Um, but to kind of give you some of my takeaways from our talk today, you're introducing DART as kind of the framework for how you see development of self in a lot of ways. And then the reconstruction when we can evaluate and mindfully look at how did it become this way, appreciating that it became this way over years and traumas and then generations behind us. And then where it splits then is what do we do with this clinically and how we're working with clients? And on the other side, what do we do with it and how we're working with ourselves and doing our own work to acknowledge these things instead of just saying like, oh, it's just the way I am, but actually taking it deeper. Um, before we close for today, LaShonda, I want to invite you, what are some other things that you think are important takeaways in this conversation um, that you'd like for our listeners to hear about or things you want to talk a little bit more about? Um, yeah, I think one thing that you brought up kind of, it is, it is such a, a vast model. Like you said, we're looking at um, geneograms. We're looking at the kind of historical perspective. We are looking at... Um, how you know somatic experiencing is a very foundational part of the DART model. So is um, Gestalt therapy. We do empty chair work. Um, we do, and so just talking about the process. So overall, this model is how I see the world. We're building the five core. So within the model, we are definitely cultivating and uh, strengthening the functional adult. But I do want to talk about three particular parts of this model that we do. So one is we do something called the debriefing. And this, again, can be over a series of sessions within an office. But I also conduct uh, intensive therapy weekends, which are equivalent to about six to 12 months of therapy. It is intense. It is all day three days, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. It's a group process of three or four people. And the three processes that we do are first, we do a debriefing, which is looking at our family of origin. There's a form, a very long uh, 13 page thing that gets filled out. And we're kind of looking for themes. We're looking for all these things in our family of origin. The second process that we do is inner child work, where we are within in mind's eye gestalt therapy kind of empty chair reminiscent of empty chair we're going back to make contact with that inner child um, as a functional adult who is coming to give them what they need and we do that process with various parts of ourselves i've done this so many times um i love this work i do i try to do an intensive weekend every year <laughs> and so far i've worked with my three-year-old my four-year-old my nine-year-old my 14-year-old and my 17-year-old um and so we we kind of make contact with them um, and give them what they need. And then the third process that we do is called feelings reduction or standing in your truth. And that's when we get to confront the person who offended us or hurt us or didn't keep us safe, not as they are now, but as they were then. And we get to confront them as our functional adult to tell them, this is how what you did or didn't do impacted me. This is how it's shown up in my life, but I'm also going to give that back to you. And we're kind of speaking on behalf of that inner child who did not get to express those things. And so these are three very powerful processes that take this from an intellectual, um, yeah, it's all nice. I realize, you know, here are these things, but make it pretty concrete in the sense that we don't have to carry and shoulder the weight of this the way we have been for our lives. And so, you know, I just wanted to expand upon that. We do use CBT in regards to part of how we communicate with our inner children and function and the functional adult. So it's such a vast model that I can't think of a single kind of therapy that a person can specialize in and say, mm, this doesn't fit. I'm trained in EMDR. I do other forms of uh, trauma responsive work and it all marries together very well. So I wanted to note that. And um, I think the last thing I'll say is um, this model has changed my life. It has changed the way I see myself. It has changed the way I have and how I engage with the world. I am so much kinder to myself. I have so much love and compassion for myself. I, I am so loved by me. <laughs> for a person who spent her life shape-shifting and people-pleasing so that I could be seen, heard, and loved, 
I now realize I don't have to do any of those things anymore because I love me and so many other people love me, but I don't need them to love me so that I love me. And this model helped me do that. Um, and I see so many uh, positive responses from the clients that I work with um, in this model in some way, shape or form is in, in how I work with all of my clients. So it's just, um, it's an endorsement, but it's also to say it's not something I read in a book um, or, you know, that I'm trying to get people to hop onto the new, you know, the new trend. It, it really is a very hopeful, holistic and trauma responsive model. Wonderful. Thank you, LaShonda. Um, this has been a uh, a calming and um, kind of eye-opening hour. I think calming in the sense that it's just normalizing because this is part of who we are. You know, these these traumas that we just kind of carry with us and the importance of bringing them out and looking at them and letting them exist. And also for the sake of our families, uh, you know, and the generations before us and also for, for our clients. Um, LaShonda, for people who want to get in touch with you, what's the best way to do that? Yes, you can uh, get in touch with me by going to my website, www.thelaborsoflove.com. From there, you have access to all of my social media, my YouTube channel, and my podcast. But you also have access to Healing Our Core Issues Institute, which is who provides the DART training, as well as HealingTraumaNetwork.net. If you're interested in this and you would like a DART specializing therapist, that is a database of us. And all of that can be accessed from my website. Wonderful. Thank you again, LaShonda. We appreciate it. Thank you. You've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership, where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.